Thanks for listening to this archive of Teaching American History's Saturday webinar for March 7th, 2020. This Saturday webinar in our American Minds series was about social reformer Jane Addams. We were joined in this program by Dr. Chris Burkett, our moderator, and panelists Dr. Jennifer Keene and Mac Mariani, who discussed her ideas, her letters, and her legacy. Welcome, everybody, to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett. I teach here at Ashland University and am the director of the Ashburg Scholar Program for undergraduate students at Ashland University. And in case you're joining us for the first time, uh, the, the theme of our series this year is American Minds, and the point is to pull together some thoughtful scholars to discuss 10 important persons who uh, we think reflect somehow this thing we that, that Thomas Jefferson uh, called the American mind uh, and have had an influence on, on the American mind, how Americans think about important things. So as always, we encourage those of you joining us to participate in that conversation by submitting questions via the chat box, and we'll get to as many of those as possible. If you do submit a question, please make sure you submit it to all participants so that our panelists can see them as well in case they'd like to jump right to a question. And the next week, you'll receive an email with a link to request a certificate of participation. And that email will also include a link to the archived video and audio of today's discussion. Um, today, we're talking about Jane Adams, And I'm very honored to have with us today uh, Jennifer Keene of Chapman University and Mac Mariani of Xavier University. Thanks for joining us, the both of you. Thank you. you. Thank you. So... I usually just start by by throwing out some broad uh, 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 sort of uh, sometimes rambling thoughts, and then you you pick up wherever you want to pick up and go wherever you want to go with this uh, to help us get into the mind of Jane Adams. Uh, before the program, we were we were talking about what a fascinating person she is, and I was saying um, I'm I'm learning more about her, but I was amazed at how little I actually knew about her. In terms of her background, I knew she was famous for you know her work at Hull House, um, and of course I knew she was a strong advocate advocate for women's suffrage. But I've I've really been surprised to to the extent uh, at the extent to which she wrote uh, very um, insightful uh, works uh, on education, on um, you know finding remedies for the kinds of problems that are arising in these uh, you know, new large urban areas, right? The, the rise of the big cities after industrialization. But I was really impressed with, the, with her mind and just how thoughtful she was and how, uh, how respected she was by others who we think of as sort of the intellectual leaders of the time. So um, there was no question in that, I guess. I'm <laughs> just starting to, to, uh, to maybe start with, what is it that uh, both of you find uh, most impressive about Jane Addams or most interesting about Jane Addams, and then maybe we can get into her background a little bit and, and sort of the specific things she was calling for in terms of uh, social reforms. Either of you like to start? I'll start. Please, thank you, <laughs> I think that one of the things that's so interesting about Jane Addams is um, what, how do we define somebody as a social activist and how do they go about sort of 
coming into that path of life and then deciding how they are going to uh, present their message. And when you read about Jane Addams, the first part of her journey is almost a journey for personal fulfillment because she herself had um, terrible health problems as a child. She she had curvature of the spine. She she wanted to go to medical school, but she was thwarted in that effort because of her because of her um, health problems, but she was one of these generation of uh, first uh, female college educated, um, well-to-do women who then had to think, what can I do with my life besides get married and have children, which didn't really seem in the cards for her. And so she has this sort of personal journey and then revelation about um, it coming out more about a nutrition of Christian charity, about how to help the poor but then she evolves into really somebody, when you look at the major movements she was connected to, is just pivotal to understanding the rest of social movement um, evolution and development in the 20th century. She, uh, she's, one of the, she's one of the founding sociologists of, uh, in, a, in an era when sociology as a field of study is being created. She's a founding member of the NAACP. She's a founding mo- member of the ACLU. She's, uh, she's, uh, she wins the Nobel Peace, Pri- Nobel Peace Prize for her, her stance, staunch uh, pacifism during the First World War, you know, the peace movement being another important movement of the 20th century. And so, so Hull House is where we all start with Jane Addams, and I, we, we do definitely want to talk about Hull House today, but I think that it's, it's just a sort of amazing journey that she goes on in terms of how her, her whole uh, life unfolds. Yeah, thanks, Jennifer. That's been my path to discovering Jane Addams. Yeah. I started with her book on, uh, was it 20 Years at Whole years House? 20 Years at Whole House, yeah. And then from there, it just uh, it just becomes even more interesting. So, um, Mac, you're, you're, uh, you're, you teach uh, public policy, I think. Is that right? Or yeah, I do, I, so I, I do American politics and public policy. Actually, my, my biggest area of research is probably on gender and politics. So we're... Okay. Um, but, um, so I, I kind of in both, in both regards as a political scientist, I find her a fascinating person. What my, uh, uh, former colleague at Hamilton college, uh, Pete Canavro is interesting. Like I was, as I was doing some research into, into Adams, I run into, um, uh, a really interesting paper on, um, from, from Pete Canavo about her role as this sort of what he, what Canavo describes as an inflection point for, um, Feminism, an inflection point as well for environmentalism, um, and uh, he highlights, I think, what is a, a really interesting sort of articulation of this sort of civic republicanism, mm-hmm. uh, right? That focuses on you know participatory democracy and um, the, the the idea of public good and the social obligations we have to one another, um, and the idea that it's not enough to to to, to feed the poor. Um, but also to kind of walk with them and and to en- engage them um, as a part of a broader society, right? So there's this this idea that the um, that the poor, and I guess this partly goes into the the, the, the Christian charity el- element of things, is that these are part of our social obligations to one another, um, and that uh, treating somebody as uh, uh, as inherently valuable and and um, is is really critical to kind of understanding who they are and and, um, and and being able to help them, not just to provide assistance for temporarily, but to um, to elevate um, the people around you and elevate yourself by your interactions with them. Um, 
the other piece of this is this, you know, really interesting sort of idea of civic housekeeping that I think uh, when you think about what she brings to the table in terms of uh, um, this really clever sort of way of embracing the traditional roles of women and figuring out how to how to leverage those sort of stereotypes about women as being uh, relegated to the household um, in a way that extends the idea of the household beyond um, beyond where where you are to include the city um, and also to to emphasize the fact that we can't um, our households are not in fact isolated right what happens in the city um, whether it comes to sanitation or education or juvenile justice, all of those things that impact our household. And so um, she's really this playing a key role in kind of um, develop, redeveloping or re recrafting the idea of female citizenship in a way that is uh, tied to this previous notions of femini femininity and the, the role of women in their spheres as uh, homemakers but extending that out to give them a, a role in, in public life uh, that was far beyond what, what they had, that what most women had back in the 1880s and 1890s. Yeah. And I think just picking up on that, I mean, it's, we're sort of looking at now, I think at this, one of our documents on women's consciousness and social amelioration that she's also you know, trying to address the, 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 apathy of her class and say, why should I care about these things? I think there's, it's so timely, this, this essay. There's so many things that we can connect to in our own times, which is that she's also in so many great ways in 20 years at Hull House is even a better example of this, a propagandist. I mean, she's trying to really sell the message about why what she's doing matters and why every person of her class should care. And in this essay, she's, she's a radical wrapped in the the language of a moderate. So I'm not really trying to upend the gender the gendered system. Of course, your family and home is the most important thing that you care about, but you honestly can't take care of them the way that you should in an industrialized urban society unless you start caring about your neighbors and look outside your window, right? That's it's almost like uh, you know, you have to look at the, <laughs> the greater picture or your family will be at risk. And so almost suggesting in the most uh, you know, fundamental way, you can't do your job as a mother and a wife if you don't get involved in civic housekeeping. But then she obviously mm -hmm. builds that out more to really kind of emphasize, like many progressive reformers at the time, the real injustice and the real danger to democracy that, that's happening as a, in, a, in a moment of great immigration, if class stratification, you know, continues, if social isolation of different groups and enclaves continues, that we will lose this, this sense of collective endeavor that makes a democracy work. And I think in that sense, she's sneaky because she's actually, as I think Chris was suggesting earlier, making a much more fundamental argument about how American democracy is going to continue as these new economic changes um, uh, and demographic changes occur, um, but wrapping it all up in sort of very traditional gendered, gendered notions. And that's, again, what I find so fascinating because it's so smart. <laughs> and, yeah, that's a great point. And it's strategizing. And I, I often think that when we look at social movement culture, we always want to look for principal dedication on the part of the people that found these movements. But these part people are savvy, too, and they have to think about how they're presenting their, their movement, how they're how they're, you know, how they're 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 not going to scare people off, how they can woo people to their side. 
And for Hull House, Jane Addams had to do a lot of fundraising. She re- she required not just for these people to care, but for them to open up their pocketbooks and actually support her endeavor. And that was, of course, what was so problematic when she became a pacifist in the First World War, because all these people who had seen her as relatively moderate and had supported her, now she was very radical. Yeah. And that was part of the, the problem there. And it was part of the problem for, for Hull House because her money dried up. Well, there's that great story uh, about the uh, the woman who took care of her home, right? And she cleaned her her home was clean and her home was spotless. Yep. And yep. and um, and uh, when her her educated daughters came back home uh, on break or whatever, they ended up getting typhoid, right? And di- and one of them yeah. died, and the other was essentially hobbled for oh, yeah. two years. Um, and how yeah, many? Yeah. Okay, yeah, so how many how many thought of coronavirus? <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? Yeah. Timely. Yeah. Very timely. <laughs> it, you know, that idea that that um that the the wealth you know, listen, the wealthy can't shut themselves out um from these problems, that these are these are these are these are social problems that can't be um you know, she's speaking of sanitation, but I think yeah. it was also her broader view that all these all of these problems are are things you can't say are isolated to these poor immigrant communities. Mm-hmm. They affect they ultimately affect all of us. Yeah. And um, if we don't uh, um, if if we don't start to understand our obligations to one another as citizens um, and our obligation to get involved and address these problems, mm-hmm. um, they're going to come back to bite us. Yeah. Oh, those are great. Uh, uh, on that point and some points that both of you raised earlier, uh, one thing that I, I think a lot of my students are impressed with about Jane Addams is um, she's part of that general um, movement toward what you're just emphasizing, an emphasis on uh, putting aside sort of the more egoistic, uh, self-interested, uh, individualistic, if you will, in the old-fashioned sense approach to thinking about citizenship and, and coming to realize that we all have a part in, in making our society better because we're all part of a larger whole. But what the, what our, what my students really appreciate her is say, opposed to somebody like Woodrow Wilson, right. Uh, and other in, intellectuals, uh, strictly intellectuals, she's not just giving that message in, in a very thoughtful way. She's actually doing things. She's mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. raising money, she's actually participating in the classes uh, uh, and, and, you know, talking with people, uh, so uh, I find that she actually gets a great deal of respect because she's she's not just sort of preaching uh, the, the message of reform uh, and, and reforming ethics. Right. She's she's right on board with that larger message of we've got to not just do this piecemeal, but we're uh, in a sort of progressive vein at the time. We want to reform society and make it uh, reform it along the lines of being much more ethical as they understood mm-hmm. ethics. There, there's uh, a time. there's a tension, I think, though, right? Because she's clearly pushing the, you know, she's a reformer and she's she's a progressive and in, in in many ways supports Teddy Roosevelt in his uh, bull moose campaign, and mm-hmm. um, I think later on speaks for um, for FDR and some others. But uh, you know, there's a tension between like she's got this very she's critical of the machine politics of the day, right? We go right. to the readings. You, the students did was uh, was that uh, about Tammany Hall, right? The, this idea, this sort of transactional sort of politics of the day that was very corrupt, uh, very much built around self-interest, um, very much built um, around um, the idea that um, you know, listen, part parties are are kind of focused on what's good for them, and um, oftentimes the people who were in charge of things were. 
um, we're not necessarily the, the best people, quote unquote. Um, whereas, um, you know, the later models of, of social welfare organization are, you know, to, you know, think about the progressive reforms ultimately push, push through the sort of science of politics, right? The science of administration and uh, very top down sort of uh, bureaucratic um, solutions to problems. And she, it's interesting to the extent that she sits sort of in a, in a different space. Um, she's not trans, not transactional and self-interested, um, but, um, really transformational, um, but also built around the idea that it, this is, you know, the, the idea of a, this sort of faceless bureaucracy, like she saw, I, I believe she saw, um, government and regulation as being an essential piece of social, social life, but mm-hmm. she also wasn't. Um, she, this was not an impersonal sort of top-down bureaucracy. Um, this was really a, the sort of uh, kind of partnerships that the public had to make, and, and particularly people who were educated. Um, and by educated, I mean both traditionally educated, but also the people who were educated through interacting with one another and attending these uh, talks and, and discussions that would happen in the whole house um, to become engaged citizens to solve problems in their own communities. So it's, it's an interesting sort of space she inhabits because, because she, these sorts of solutions end up getting pushed aside to some extent by the fact that, um, well, we've got bureaucracies to do that now. And so the idea of going and living among the poor and, and, and men and tending to their social, uh, to their social needs, um, you know, tends to take a back seat to the, to the, you know, government officials, um, who, you know, put you on a list and, and you either qualify or not qualify. Uh, it's a very different sort of model of, of, of welfare. I, I think I, ha- I never thought this until I was just listening to you, Mac, but I, it, I was struck as I was listening to you by actually in some ways, some of the similarities between Tammany Hall and what Jane Adams is doing in the sense that they're both, even though they have different motivations and they have different processes for doing it, what they are is basically delivering social services to the poor. And Tammany Hall is going to do it, you know, buy, find you a job, give you a chicken, um, you know, on, on Christmas, um, maybe pay your rent for you in exchange for your votes, right? They want, they want to stay in power, but, but they, they are providing social services to to their to their followers, uh, Jane Adams. I mean, besides her hope, her general hopes about uh, we've been focusing about the role for women in this movement. But when you look at Hull House, it is basically a community center. It's a place where, where women can come and find nursery school, where they get they're, they're an employment agency. They're tra- helping people in times of unemployment. They're opening uh, art schools. Uh, of advocating for not just advocating for playgrounds, but providing supervisors for them. You know, this whole host of social services that you point out. Now we expect our bureaucracies to take to take um, part in, but she's providing that as well. And she is Hell House is gaining from those services because they also welcome in all of these new sociologists and people who want to conduct social work and they do investigations and um, they do research among the residents of Hull House. So if you've ever seen the very famous Hull House maps where they literally want to map the neighborhood to find out who's living there, where are the houses of prostitution in a time of outbreak, how does that connect to where poor sanitation facilities are? And, and these are people who are really coming to study the poor, what we could argue or discuss whether they're also in some ways objectifying them, 
But there is definitely something that people are getting out of, uh, that the people who come to Hull House are getting out of this relationship. And it's, so they, in a sense, from the perspective of the poor, they, you know, who do you choose, right? Who are you going to go to get your, your help from? And that, I think, is one of the major debates of the, of the time. How can you convince, and, and, and again, that's more in Hull House than in the readings we had here, where she talks about how she has to convince people in the neighborhood to trust her, to come to her, to not think that she's going to just impose her own standards and, and, um, and etiquette and ways of living on them. And this right. is when I'm helping me circle back to uh, uh, to where I would, thought I was going to start, uh, which was to Chris's <laughs> point about the comparison to Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> As a world or one historian, I have a lot to say about Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, I know you I, do. <laughs> I, won't, I won't go down that path today. But the big difference to me between Woodrow Wilson and Jane Addams is Jane Addams has humility. And, and oh, that's she, a great point. Right. And she <laughs> is what I what my students love about her, what I love about her. There's a lot of things to love. But one thing I really love about her is that in her writings, she is always learning something from her, her neighbors. Mm-hmm. The immigrants always teach her something. She goes in and she almost presents herself as I was the do-gooder. I thought I had all the answers. And then I learned something like in our readings here. Of course, if you're yeah. unemployed, take whatever job you can get. I, gave, I encouraged this man to take this job. He told me he'd always did, done indoor work. You know, two days later, he contracts pneumonia. Now he's dead. And how is his family really any better off for me following the rules and saying you have to go work, you know, on this drainage ditch? So, and there's a lot of stories that she includes like that. And I think she's trying to send the message that the, the, our new immigrant, uh, immigrant neighbors and, you know, these new Americans, have a lot to tell us. That it's not just a one-way street that we have everything to tell them. And that ability to learn and the humility, I think, is a big difference, <laughs> I would argue, from the way Woodrow Wilson presents you know, his ideas yeah. of progressivism. I think that's a very generous way to put it, uh, Jennifer, <laughs> <laughs> on your part. Thank I'm you. feeling charitable. Jane you're being charitable, I meant. making very... me feel charitable this morning. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're feeling charitable. You're, you're being charitable to Wilson. Uh, yes. Uh, but that's great. That's wonderful. Uh, I was uh, just finished teaching a mag course on the progressive era, and I had mentioned that a number of psychologists, including Freud, did a after Wilson's death did a, a psychoanalysis. I'm, are you both familiar with? You may be familiar with this. And yeah. Freud concluded that Wilson was suffering from a messianic complex. Yes. Uh, so you know, if, if Freud. Well, anyway, never mind. That, yeah. Well, he was an right. academic, so that's understandable. <laughs> right. <laughs> But there are so many good points in what you were just raising. And just to circle back a little bit, Jennifer, I think you you actually anticipated Billy's question, which he submitted just as you started to speak uh, on this, uh, where he says, given the influence of the party boss, is it fair to say that the sort of logical replacement for such a person or institution was the development of a social welfare system at the city level? So as soon as you started to to say that, his his question came up. So it's perfect timing. but again, uh, and, and Mack had brought up, um, you know, uh, sort of Adam's place as a progressive, which I also thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. And, and as I mentioned, I just finished teaching the Progressive Era course. And one of the hardest things to do every time I teach that course is, is say, who is a progressive? I mean, how do you define a progressive at that time? Because there are so many shades of, of, of difference among them. I, again, they seem to have some things in common, but as you pointed out, 
Jane Addams was not inclined toward this nationalization mm-hmm. of, of social help and, and so on and so forth, um, uh, which was unique. And I always found it interesting that she still signed up to support Roosevelt uh, uh, as the progressive nominee in 1912, because Wilson, of course, had a record of, I'm sorry, Roosevelt had a, a record of nationalization. And of course, had been uh, was was the opposite of a pacifist to throw that out there as well. well so it's an interesting it's interesting to try to figure out where she fits in as a progressive. In that I, I've always kind of seen it as what what ties them together is what they're against, right? Which is mm. you know the party machinery, right? And so like if you think about the um, the the progressive, there's kind of that that strain of progressivism that is about direct democracy. Um, the introduction of primaries, the introduction of referenda, um, the introduction of um, uh, election of senators, things like that. And then there's the 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 idea of expertise, right? Um, right. And and the scientific administration. And both of those, I mm-hmm. think, have the have the mutual uh, fact of of reducing the power of party bosses. Um, and so they might not have they might not always have agreed on on on. Uh, on what progressivism is, but they, they knew what it wasn't. Well, that's a great way to put it. I'm sorry, Jennifer, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say that I, I think in Billy's question, what I, I, the word I sort of emphasize is city. And I think sometimes because now we live in what, you know, in a, in a society where the federal government looms so large and federal policies seem so important and what happens on the local level seems less significant, right? You can hardly get people to come out for an election if it's if if a presidential choice is not is not in play. But I think that what Jane Addams, these readings and and even her strand of of progressivism really reminds us is that pre- progressives are probably the most effective on the local level. And when they talked about regulation and a more important role for the government, most often they were the, the the progressives that were actually in the movement, you know, across the country. Were thinking about local politics, about city politics, and sometimes state politics. And I think when we take it to the level of just um, privileging the national, the presidential view of what progressivism is, we we lose that really important element of the progressive movement where their notion that on the local level, a, a community would kind of replicate almost like the small town environment of the, there was kind of romanticism to it too. sort of harking back to the, to the, to the idea when everybody knew each other and you could all just, you know, come down to the town hall and discuss and, and you, 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 you really had this personal relationship with the people that were governing you. Um, but now in a big city with you don't even speak the same languages, you never you don't even know people in this part of town, which is another big point she raises here. How can you feel to collect together and feel that you need to come together as one, which is also what she's sort of suggesting in these readings. And so to me that I mean, that's hard because then you're saying, oh, well, do you, are you saying to study progressivism? We have to study 5000 case studies of how it you know operates in all these right. different communities which is in a sense yes if we really want to know what it is but i my i guess my my big point here is we shouldn't overemphasize the national cuz that's where our gaze is in at our moment in time without uh privileging the, the way she's pulling us into chicago she's talking about chicago and and that and that detail that she's giving us it matters because the specific problems Chicago has um, may not be the problems that New York has, may not be the problems that San Francisco has. Um, but the the point is more the approach is what was is what progressives could have could have in common. 
Well, and, and you can mm. you can imagine it. There's that one again. She's great with stories. I mean, that's one of the great yeah. things about about, about uh, her writings is that she she's drawing on her experiences. And you know, there's the story about they they there's so much garbage on the street. You know mm-hmm. that they they dig through and they find after there's actually they don't they forgot there was even a street there that there was actually pavement <laughs> there. They dig down and I think it's like 12 inches or 18 inches below the surface yeah. of what people are walking on and horses are riding on is is an actual paved street. Um, <laughs> um, and so you know if we if, when, when you when you imagine that the, these sorts of problems that people are dealing with and. Um, the problems of administration in a in in, in the realities of um, what used to be you could use you you know if you go back to this sort of agrarian lifestyle um, the implications of, of of what we do in terms of sanitation the implication in terms of public health um, noise crime all those other things are um, dramatic you know they're they're exponentially more difficult to deal with once you once you get into a city and in an urban environment, and um, and the need for administration, mm-hmm. and the um, um, and and then um, the, the parties step into the breach, um, but they're very ineffective. They're very, you know, they're they're um, uh, they're, they're they're administering uh, their policies in a way that um, helps certain groups and and doesn't help others. There's an inequality there, both an inequality in terms of the benefit, but also an inequality in terms of, of um, who gets served and who doesn't mm-hmm. that um, that really um, doesn't fit well with the idea of, of, of a democracy of all. Right. And um, so there's there's these questions of democracy that come up beyond just the questions of administration. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think that she's she's so interested in. Uh, identifying who are the most vulnerable in our society, and in her her view, it is it's really women and children. And she has many of these stories that she's she's uh, relating to us, you know, have to do with with women who are they're they're either immigrants or they're they're poor or they have husbands that abuse them or abandon them. They're young right. mothers. Uh, they're you know these, she's heard examples again are of these these very small children who are either locked in tenements to be safe or sent out into the streets and um, and and then are of course uh, the temptation for vice as they as they become uh, older is present, especially young girls. Are they going to fall into uh, into prostitution? And so all all of these these ways of also identifying who are the most vulnerable and really victims of the environment in which they live. And I do think that it's it's worth also maybe pulling in some social Darwinism at this moment because. Of course, she was also in an intellectual environment where attitudes towards the poor, as today, were very conflicted. I mean, are mm-hmm. the poor really people that we should feel sorry for, that we should empathize? Should we feel sorry and sympathy for them? Should we feel empathy for them? Should we feel contempt for them? Uh, should we feel fear of them? Right? Those are kind of the gamut of emotions, which I would say we, we still have. And and what and those are emotions we project onto immigrants, onto people who are who are who are uh, mired in poverty, and uh, who are different than us in terms of their socioeconomic background, their their ethnic background, their racial background, the languages that they speak. And I think that she's trying to uh, emphasize the, our shared humanity and the sense that you should you can connect to these people and their situations as human beings. And she mm. 
trying to explain why why would somebody find themselves in this situation? Not because they're a bad person or they're idle or their their um, their racial stock is less than yours. Because l- let me explain to you how they live, what has happened to them, choices that situations that they that are out of their control. And she does that without without also acknowledging that there are some people who make bad choices. So she's she, in that sense she's she's very progressive. I mean, you could see the same sort of argument being made by Jacob Rees, by Lewis Hine, by so many of the major reformers of the time who take a very similar kind of approach to how they want to educate you know the other half about how the other half lives. And that I mm. think is it really connects her also to this larger this this larger movement of reformers that are that are out there um, trying to spur people's social consciousness. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really uh, that your point about the social Darwin from the social Darwin perspective is really amazing. So it's, uh, it, you know, it, she's not just going to leave them behind and let them sink yeah. because that's the national natural progression of things. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and and it's it, not, that's in the intellectual environment of the time, right? Yeah. This is, this is very much what people are uh, yeah. arguing about. And that's fascinating. And again, I, 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 I think we, I know when I started reading Jane Adams, my my favorite piece, by the way, which, which we didn't recommend, I probably should have, is uh, "Spirit of uh, Spirit of the Youth in the City Streets," mm-hmm. uh, and it, and it really showed to me just how new these these problems are that she's dealing with. With the, I mean, the rise of these massive cities, these major urban areas, is a fairly recent phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. That she's dealing with in the post-industrialization age, and so there are these all these new problems that that you that you've been bringing up that. That in the old sort of idyllic way of thinking about uh, small town life or si- or even family life, um, uh, we didn't really didn't have to deal with these sorts of problems. There were other problems that they were dealing with, but problem as you brought up, prostitution, uh, gang life, right, mm-hmm. is rampant mm-hmm. in cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, alcoholism, of course, drug use is on the rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, unwed pregnancies, she's concerned with, and and trying to educate, uh, you know, women. Uh, with regard to that, uh, sexually translate, uh, transmitted as the STDs, right? Domestic abuse. She sees all of these on the rise as a result of this very sudden conflux of people in this in these urban areas, and somebody has to find ways to deal with these things. And uh, but those problems are so new uh, yeah. uh, that sometimes I think she's she's uh, her, her methods in some sense. Some people think her methods are are, are rather radical. I, Notice the question here. I'm talking a lot. I apologize, but uh, uh, Danita, uh, I'm, I don't. Uh, Danita, I think I'm picking up your vibe here. She's she's not a, uh, necessarily a huge fan of some of her her policies. So Danita uh, uh, mentions that uh, she had been taught that some of the classes that Jane Adams uh, had been teaching at Hull House actually caused conflict in some families. Um, but but um, but I think what Jane Adams is trying to recognize is the family as we used to know it, it simply doesn't exist anymore. And we have to be realistic, at least in the big cities, right? We have to be realistic about how to preserve the family by, by educating uh, women, especially um, about what the modern urban family is going to be like. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think that the, you know, there, there's some, certainly some room for criticism of, I think of, and, and, and Jane Adams has been criticized for one, a, a, a uh, uh, what I think is a sense of paternalism, uh, you know, part of this idea of like, 
bringing the you know creating a space for 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 arts and and music and 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 discussions uh, and talks is the idea of elevating the the uh, the immigrants because they they need to be kind of reconciled with American culture right these are these are immigrants from from Italy or Poland and 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 they are they've got these sort of backwards notions that need to be replaced with a, a more you know a more American um, sort of mentality. Um, mm-hmm. But I think there's also a clear sense, and I think Jennifer talked about this a little bit. Um, there's a clear sense that she's 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 very frequently acknowledging what she's learning from the mm-hmm. immigrants and the mm-hmm. fact that there's more that. That it's a two-way street, and you know, and I think the idea that 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 um, that immigrants um, have something to add to the society, and that we might learn a great deal from them, comes out in a, in a very specifically mm-hmm. in a number of her writings. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there is at the same time a a, a sense that the um, the immigrants um, have notions of, of of government, and in particular, you see it in that fight with. Um, with the with the machine, right? With Joe Powell or whatever the the city council person, right? Is, is that they're um, they're she, she's trying to to get um, the immigrants in the community around her to recognize that um, that the machine ultimately, even though they're they, they might be able to find you a job and they might be able to um, they might be there when you when when you need a um, you know a, a, a Turkey for Thanksgiving or whatever it happens to be, um, that that this is that that truly transforming your life and change and, and and raising your consciousness about what's possible requires us to move past what the machines can offer. And it mm-hmm. makes me think of there's this guy Gaventa who writes about power, right? And there's these three kind of dimensions of power that he describes. One is the sort of pluralism of We've got groups, and some groups don't have enough resources to 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 to, to win the, these sort of battles in the public sphere. The second dimension of power relates to kind of uh, the mobilization of bias, the fact that the, that that actually some groups are mobilized out. Um, but the third dimension of power, which is I think the one where she's operating on, is this this notion of consciousness, right? She's trying to get um, the people in her community to envision a world that, that didn't rely on the machines and, and to envision a, a different sort of society even. Um, so she's kind of working on this consciousness level. Um, and to some extent, she's also doing that with not just with the immigrants, but with her own class, like look out your window, right. And, and see, you know, how many poor, how many, how many poor kids do you see? And um, is, is, is the idea that, um, we're, we become sort of ignorant and um, um, there are all these problems of, that are kind of invisible to us and that we, once we kind of recognize what, um, when we can see these problems and also see solutions that don't even, that aren't even on the table, uh, different ways of organizing our society and different ways of thinking about politics, um, that's how we can, can kind of move past um, the, the the problems of the industrial age, I think, is is mm. where she is. And again, she's not perfect, and 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 she certainly um, carries some of the baggage of that kind of mid 18th century um, uh, suffrage movement, right? Which is um, the sort of 
um, not always hidden disdain for the, these sort of lower classes. Um, she's moved past that in a great, to a great deal, but, but she carries some of that baggage as well. Mac, I'm just really quick. Sorry to, I think again, you, uh, 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 Billy had anticipated your comment. <laughs> He's on Billy, fire today. You're right on. You should be part of the creation. Join in. Well, I hope that answers your question, uh, Billy. I think that was very well put. I'm sorry, Jennifer. I, I, I was going to say that I think, you know, Jane Addams can all be so be criticized in the, in the context of her times from some of the people who um, are making different arguments about why women should be involved in politics or have a voice. And that is not from the argument of women are different and women have different responsibilities and women have a different sphere, but rather the argument that women are equal <laughs> and women should be able to be in politics because they should have equal rights up to men. And and you can see that, that in some of her writings, I mean, this is also the time when there's beginning to be, there will be a fracture in the women's movement with uh, women like Alice Paul, who are going to leave uh, NASA, the, the more moderate women's uh, rights organization, and are going to be arguing from a position of equal rights, which is, which is different than what Jane Addams is saying. Jane Addams may not be living this, but in her rhetoric, she is always conforming to gendered notions of what women's role in society is. Even in her pa pacifism, women are, women, no mother wants to raise her son to die in war. Women are naturally pacifists. So you need women in the public sphere because they have different concerns. They will bring a different voice. They're, they're different than men. And, and just like, you know, every family needs a mother and a father, so should the body politic. And so it's this notion of, of operating within those gendered norms that she always she always goes, and she uses that to to they uh, and, and she's part of the progressive movement that uses this to get protective legislation for women and children. And those that's because those are you know women are different, so they need to have few hours of work. They need to have these special social services from the government provided to them. Um, that's this, you know, you can see in some of her writings, aid for women to dependent children, you know, what's going to happen in the New Deal. You kind of see the, the, the nuts of that art, the nutshell of that argument being created here. And that does put her in opposition with, with other women who begin to develop a very different argument for why women should have the vote, should be able to be in politics, should be able to, um, to go to college and, and have careers and live their lives. And so that, so we, so rather than just thinking of Jane Addams, you know, I mean, from the kind of political side, even within the political movements that she's a part of, there's, there are more radical wings that we might find those arguments more acceptable today than right. the Jane Addams arguments. Right. Well, yeah, that was kind of, I'm sorry, yeah. Matt, go ahead. I also think it's interesting that she herself doesn't live that, you know, like, no, I know. Is, that's right. Yeah, she's not you know, she is, <laughs> so she's uh, this sort of very, I mean, she's an independent, obviously she's independent. She's out in these very dangerous uh, yes. situations consistently. She's, you know, she gets the job as the city garbage inspector, yeah, right? a yeah, very unladylike yeah. job, right. <laughs> Where she's literally following the, 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 um, the party, uh, nominated garbage men, right, and yeah. and making sure they're doing their work, and and all of this stuff is she. So yeah, she's at once reinforcing those norms and breaking them at the same time. Yeah, um, and there, you know, there's part of me that you know, yeah, I think she's too consistent about it to not be um, 
um, true to, to, I think she, she does kind of believe those norms to some extent. Um, but I think there's, you know, you can also make the argument that, that casting uh, women's advancement in that, in that way is probably, um, there, there's also a certain tactical benefit to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, but, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, although I think, yeah. I think that it's, it's maybe not as tactical with her just, he seems to be very well. I, I think she's like Booker mm-hmm. T. Washington. I mean, you're gonna you can have the same sort of critique of Booker T. Washington at the time, where he's he really, you know, is the sense of we have to pull our, you know, for African Americans, you have to start right. at the bottom of life and move up. You need to be in the crafts and the skills, um, as opposed to and kind of incrementally accept a gra- you know, this gradualist approach to to civil rights. Contrasting him with Du Bois, who's like integration now, you know, equal rights now. But then if you look at how Booker T. Washington also lived his life and, and the causes that he secretly funded, you're, you're left with, well, what is he? Is he just strategizing or does he really believe this? And so you can, you can get into that, that debate with him as well. But I, I think the key thing is that because of whether, whatever they believed or how they lived, they did impact the way people thought about these issues through their writings and their speeches. And um, and we will see that in the 1920s when women do have the right to vote that, you know, with the Equal Rights Amendment and again, a split in the movement about whether or not this should be supported um, because it would undo in the, in the fears of, of a lot of uh, women who had erected these protective laws for women. It would erase those. And they're worried about that because they will we want to go mm-hmm. back. I mean, we fought hard to get those laws. So is that what an Equal Rights Amendment is going to do? And so I think it, again, sets up um, future debates and future tensions about how do women really um, secure their role in public life? And do they do it by shattering gendered norms and, and you know, and, and expectations? Or do they work within them to achieve those rights? And again, this to me is a very timely argument. Um, yeah. No, this this is very well put. Uh, very, uh, <laughs> you're putting this much more eloquently and thoughtfully than I was. Thinking. But this is my point earlier about um, uh, some of the things that Jane Adams is dealing with are so new from our, from our current perspective. We look back and we can say, well, she wasn't radical enough, mm. <laughs> or, or we can say even some of the things she's suggesting seem to share. Uh, she seems to share the prejudices of the day, mm-hmm. which I think is also true. But I mean, but that's a, a little unfair, I think, of us from our modern perspective to say. Well, she's supposed to be this great reformer. Why does she have these opinions about immigrants, and why doesn't she, you know, uh, a little more uh, forthright and things? But the, the the political considerations here, I think, are extremely important. But I also think it's important to keep in mind she is on the she is a front runner, a forerunner. Absolutely, of these yeah. Things. So, yeah. Uh, if if uh, if we think the reforms, as you were saying, Jennifer, the conversation, the di- the dialogue that comes out of this out of the things that she's calling for have been good for society, then I think we need to give her the credit at least of mm-hmm. really setting the dialogue in motion in a way, right? Despite, uh, again, some of the prejudices that might re- be revealed again from our modern perspective. So. And I but. think, I think the way that she humanizes the immigrant experience and the way that she really um, talks about their skills and their, their, their emotions and their, you know, their, that it's it's a it's honestly it's something we use again some more of today to not just be um, looking at immigrants as this undesirable group that's come to uh, sort of uh, 
you know, to drag yeah. American society down, but instead, which was the, was a pretty common view at the time, absolutely, right? Absolutely, right? I mean, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, with these uh, undesirable immigrants from portions of Europe. I mean, she's speaking about a lot about Italians. We were very looked down at the time, and and really trying to affirm them and sort of say, talking about, you know, what did they do in their villages and why do they want to keep doing things this way? Even something like doing the laundry that, you know, in your village going out and into the square and it's a, it's a social event. It's something you enjoy doing. It brings the community together. And now you come to America and you're supposed to just be washing these clothes alone in your, in your small kitchen. And that, you know, so help, trying to explain, you know, some immigrant practices, but then at the same time, addressing this divide that develops between Americanized children and their immigrant parents, where then their children right. even look down on their parents and how this can be disruptive of the family, as you were mm. suggesting. You know, what happens to the family when children don't respect their parents anymore and don't think that they can have authority over them? And that I mean, in itself leads to a host of crimes. And so just her mm. efforts to sort of valorize these parents' skills and their crafts and their traditions is also, I think, a way to to change the view of immigrants, but then also strengthen the immigrant family, have the children look at their parents as she sort of validates these parents' abilities, like carving or singing or spinning. And in, in turn, her authority as an American woman then conveys, that conveys uh, pride in the children to their to their parents, if that makes sense. Hmm. No, and, that was for, and, yeah. That's what and, and I think that that dynamic she's aware of, because if you destroy the family, you know, it all begins with the family, right? And it goes out from the family to mm -hmm. the neighborhood, to the community, to the city. So if you destroy the family, then none of these things can work. And so in that sense, um, again, she's very prog very progressive in, in yeah. the broadest sense of all, right? Even today, we talk about, you know, the importance of the family as as really being the center of, of social stability. Yeah. So yeah. I think that she's, uh, she's very... We're, we're living under the influence of so many of the, the ideas and, and problems that she she identified. I had one more thing to say. Oh, but please, I, yeah, I, feel like, I feel like I'm talking a lot here. <laughs> so the one other thing I did want to mention um, here is that I think that some of the things that, that are undone by the progressives, in other words, the things they are not successful at, she is also uh, in these writings kind of foreshadowing for us um, a lot of the New Deal. So the problems of unemployment, the problems of old age, the problems of women who are abandoned by their husbands. I mean, if you think about right. the Social Security Act of 1935, that's like the progressives, you know, they finally succeed. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't succeed. She succeeds a little bit in a piecemeal way at a local level. But that is a moment where it does seem to require a national solution. And so so if you think about the components of that law, that that is sort of. Uh, showing how you know FDR and the New Deal, they're these are all the progressives. They're back, you know, they're back with a vengeance, and they're finally, hmm. and now they're going to use the power of the national government to do what they were unsuccessful in doing in the 1910s. That's fascinating. So, so to me, that you really are seeing like progressivism part two in the New Deal, uh, especially in the second New Deal, when you start seeing a lot of effort being paid now, not just to uh, you know, stemming the bleeding because right. of the financial crisis, but actually making right. permanent social reforms. Yeah. No, that's fascinating. Uh, had, I had not thought of that before. That's a great parallel. Um, so again, uh, we have a lot of great comments coming in. Um, and, uh, 
as we were saying earlier, I, my, my take, again, uh, give Jane Adams credit where it's due. I mean, some of her suggestions, I think, are misses. Uh, but, uh, but again, uh, given her circumstances, this is what happens when you're trying to find new solutions to new problems. But I, I, I chuckled, uh, Mac, when I saw your response on the Italian baths uh, <laughs> that she recommends. <laughs> that is a great response. So, okay, maybe a silly idea, but, uh, uh, but the point is she's, she is trying to find new ways of doing things in this particular moment in history. Um, I, Billy submitted a question. Did, uh, did Jane Adams support the Blue Book of 1917? I don't know what that is. Do either of you know what that is? I, I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, I'll look it up. I have no idea what that is. Or Billy, maybe you can give us some background on that. Um, Israel asked, uh, uh, noticed in, uh, in light of our conversation, how, how different she seems to be from others of her particular background and how she was able to step out to a large extent and her views on uh, gender roles and immigrants and these sorts of things. So Israel just asked, um, well, what, what do you both think drove her uh, to be, you know, concerned about what she was concerned about and to be who she was? My sense is that, you know, a big, I mean, a big piece of it to me is um, I think that she saw in the um, settlement houses an opportunity to um, to play a role in public life that women were not afforded. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, um, she threw herself into something that allowed her to, um, um, to, to uh, achieve the sort of impact on the world that, that um, she would have been unable to achieve elsewhere because of the, of, of the gender constraints, right? You know, if she had, uh, if she had been married, right? That, that would have it would have created, uh, in particular, a huge constraint on her ability because she would have been immediately thrown into into one of those households that she had to be responsible for. Um, whereas um, I think that uh, she was somebody who recognized early on that the constraints of society on women um, prevented would have you know prevented her from 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 achieving the sort of things she wanted to achieve so she wanted you know went a different way and and i think the the settlement houses offered a a sort of creative uh, uh, an outlet for her immense creativity and passion like i mean this is also somebody who's just absolutely um i mean she's working the, the amount of hours that she must put in in a given week um just tireless creative um, constantly seeking stimulation from, I mean, you think about all the, you know, the benefit that the, that the immigrants gained from having all these dances and, and art, artists come and um, talks that were given and, um, and recreational activities of all sorts. That was also a form of stimulation for her and her mind, right? She, you know, her, she, I think she was probably looking for an outlet for, um, uh, for for herself in a way, so I think that drove. I think that, as much as anything, drove her um, to do the sorts of things mm. that she did. Right? I think she benefited as much as anyone. That's a good point. And she wasn't by herself. I mean, she founded Hull House with Helen Star, Ellen Star, and she. Um, I think that that also that kind of she sort of found her own family. I mean, she didn't mm. get married, but she had relationships, and she sort of found that family with like-minded 
uh, progressives, and many of them came and spent long periods of time at Hull House. So these in sense really, and she had independent means. I mean, she she inherited wealth. She had the money to get it started. So she she had a way to kind of invest in her own future. Um, and I think that she, at the times in which she lived, she kind of wandered into this this community of of people who were all part of this movement. And I think once she got started, it it obviously took on a life of its own. I doubt this is what she envisioned when she, you know, went to Europe and visited Toynbee Hall and got inspired about trying to bring that model to the U.S. But but it certainly it certainly took on a life of its own. And then as she got older, she then moved into you know, many more issues. I mean, she got interested in the issue of racial discrimination, about much more about women having the right to vote, obviously issues about international peace. I mean, she, you know, she goes to Europe in, in 1915 to try to be part of this Women's Peace Party uh, a movement at The Hague of visiting all the belligerent governments and trying to uh, almost outside the normal channels of, of diplomacy negotiate some sort of peace settlement. I mean, that's way out of just being in Chicago, thinking about helping women, um, you know, get through a hard winter. And so she's she really pretty soon is almost at the level of an international diplomat, mm. um, you know, traveling the world, dealing with the most important issues of, of war and peace of, of her time. So she, she, she definitely evolves as, as yeah. she goes. That's a, that's a remarkable story. I mean, because uh, it reminds me, by the way, uh, from her background, I mean, she did not complete her, uh, she didn't get a BA, right? Because of, I think, uh, I think she. I think she graduated she from from the from rock from the the female seminary. Female seminary. That's right. That okay, to. but she, she didn't get she, to finish medical school. That's she right. She had to drop okay. out of medical school. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it, yeah. I think it's also worth noting. Again, she came from a, a very prominent Republican family. Yeah. I mean, right. capital she R was, Republican. They revered Lincoln. Lincoln revered, the, was, yeah. was a family friends, and I mean, yeah. you know, that was again in Hull House. She has a whole essay just devoted to Lincoln, and yeah. Yeah, and again, the the Republican Party is the hub of, I think it's it's the, it's, it's where the progressive impulse is coming from on a, mm-hmm. on a political level, right? It's mm-hmm. the it's mm-hmm. that it's that group within the Republican. So I was thinking again, uh, you know, she's she's grown up with a kind of um, I don't I don't know if I'm using the right term, but a kind of uh, having probably heard from being around her father and others uh, mm-hmm. ideas of of reform and progress in certain ways. So. And her father agreed to let her get become educated. I mean, I think that's an important mm-hmm. thing as well, that she didn't have to break with her family to do any of this. I mean, they had concerns about her health. But when she wanted to go to medical school, her stepmother, I think her father was dead by that point, moved with, with the fa- some of the family to, right. to Philadelphia so she could do this. So she had family support as well. And I right. think that makes a big difference. If she's if her father's like, I disown you if you if you think you even want to step foot in this you know, in terms of a college environment, obviously her life, it would have been much harder for right. her to, to do what right. she, so he believed in it, in her having an education, her illness when she was younger uh, caused her to become a great reader. She read, you know, deeply and, and thoughtfully. And, and again, in Hull House, she talks about her own education, how she, you know, young, naive, not really understanding things and how she, Again, this sense of humility she has of how she grew and she learned and she studied, um, and she has in that in that in Hull House this, <laughs> this great this great moment where she goes to visit Tol- Tolstoy 
and he she's revered him, you know, in terms of him living with the poor <laughs> right. and thinking that he's going to be so impressed with her. And she goes to visit him and he looks at her dress and she has these this dress with these enormous sleeves. And he looks at her with disdain and says, do you know how many dresses could have been made, you know, from those from that, from that fabric on your dress? And she leaves completely chastened, like, yeah. oh, my gosh, she thinks I'm an idiot. I mean, she doesn't say it that way, but... Right. But it's again this sense that she's searching and and yeah. learning and and being corrected and and her and and so she she's self-reflective in the way of her own vanity and her own um, missteps as a as a kind of misguided woman and and again how much of this is true and how much of this is her again kind of conforming to the to the to the ideas of oh that's a great question what a young woman does and how she has to be corrected and set on yeah. the right path, I don't know, but that's probably worth worth thinking about as well. Yeah, that's great. There you go. Yeah. There you go, Israel. Great to see you, too, by the way, Israel's uh, mag grad, but uh, two thoughtful answers to your to your good question. So. And then uh, Stacy, uh, our friend Stacy Moses, asked a follow-up to <laughs> your earlier point, Jennifer, and Mac has been chatting responses too. So I'd like to hear both your thoughts on this. So this is on your point about how FDR institutionalized uh, uh, solutions to the problems that, that Jane Adams had been uh, trying to deal with. So as Stacey asked, does that mean that if it hadn't been for the Great Depression, those progressive ideas of Jane Adams would would not have been implemented? Oh, what if questions? Ooh. <laughs> That's tough on a Saturday morning. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's a great question because they, you know, the progressive movement, there's always these historical debates about, you know, did the progressive movement die in the 1920s? Did it just go underground? Did it just get diverted into into more of cultural issues as opposed to political solutions for America's ills? But I do think that, I, well, I guess I'd put it this way. I don't think that uh, when FDR came in, that you know, he was a progressive. And if you look at FDR's speeches, he always begins with our great father, Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. Um, right. He reveres Woodrow Wilson, reveres progressivism and that in the Democratic Party. So even though Jane Adams is a Republican, obviously by the 1930s, is the Democratic Party that had kind of really latched onto the, that tradition as their own. And in that New Deal coalition that he constructed, there were progressives that did see this as the moment, obviously with the Townsend movement um, mm. that also is focusing on old age in the early thirties as, as really, you know, this is, this is what happened. You know, the depression has exacerbated that and made it more visible in terms of the, the problems of old age that that definitely provided an opportunity. But if you didn't have those ideas um, in a sense that people had, that that wing of the political movement was already committed to those ideas, Right. Um, would they have seen the moment of the Great Depression as the moment to to institute this? And I that's think a great that's point. So that's where sometimes the failures of earlier movements are important to understand because they come back at mm. you know in at another moment in time. They don't die. They they're still there. But when now that group comes back into political power, they can they can start putting into action things that that they've believed for a long time. Yeah, that's, that's I found I really I really circumvented that what if. So no, but that's <laughs> well, a great that's way. To put, I mean, that's the answer. Again, a great con. I mean, by pointing out FDR's always talking about you know he calls Wilson a, my, my great progressive captain and exactly. my father. And yes. So Will, yeah. uh, FDR is an institutionalist, right? And uh, yeah. at least his advisors are, right? Yeah. Uh, but okay. at heart, he is an institutionalist. Yeah. 
And uh, also so. you can see the progression then of, of, you know, with Hoover in the Great Depression, who says he, he's also a progressive. Herbert Hoover is also a progressive, but mm-hmm. of the of the kind, of maybe even more with Jane Addams. You know, this is a this is a local problem. You know, towns have to step up, states have to set up. You know, FDR is and, and Hoover's moving towards the idea it's a national problem. We need national solutions. Just at the very end of his administration, and FDR is kind of picking up that that theme. Yeah. And that's where we could ask: Is the depression really the the key thing? Because the national scope of that requires seemingly requires, especially you know, by 1933, national solutions. And that would be something that you don't see a Jane Addams saying. Jane Addams is not saying, you know what we need? We need a National Unemployment Act or national national old age pensions. She's not saying that. So that's that's where I think you could definitely see the depression making a big impact. That's a great point. Well, and I think the uh, the other piece of the depression is you don't, you don't, without the depth of the depression, you don't get the massive majorities that make some of those things possible. Oh, yeah. Um, Is that, Mac, is that what you meant? Because I was going to ask you in your... In the chat, you replied to the to Stacy's question at the national level. Probably not, at least not then. Yeah. So, so what I mean, do you mean by at least mean you not wouldn't then. get it eventually, or that there'd be a sea change in sort of a, or a slow change maybe in how people thought? But the, I mean, I think the thinking about the role of the national government in particular and the sort of hesitancy on the part of Americans, at least by tradition, to expand national power and particular executive power mm-hmm. um, would have been far more limited. The political, the political um, possibilities for, for Roosevelt would have been far more narrow. Um, you probably, you still would have governed as a progressive, but, but the sort of sweeping changes that you saw would have just been politically impossible, I think. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's part of it. I also think that the, what's interesting is that those, those sort of sweeping national changes and those sweeping policies also are, Somewhat um, uh, disconnected from the, the from um, the social um, uh, the kind of the the aspect of uh, the local the ability of local people at the ground to connect with um, those in need on a personal and social level, right? The idea of social capital that comes with uh, and that was so critical, I think, to to um, Adam's notion of of how to how to address problems, right? These are problems that are fun, that fundamentally require us to work together, um, and um, that individuals have individual problems that are, you know, that, that they're they're not interchangeable. Um, and I think national solutions often come with a sort of this sort of sweeping idea of well, we can fix this. Uh, yeah. Um, but whereas individual problems um, require require something different, and I also think that there's a notion probably in that that's more difficult to achieve at the national level um, of, you know, what are the, what are the obligations um, to, you know, not everyone. And this kind of goes back to the idea of who's deserving of help. Um, But, but there are Mm -hmm. certain, there are certain people who, who aren't, um, there are certain expectations on the part of the people you're helping. Right. That, um, um, and I think that the, um, the, there's a certain limitation on, Helping those who are actually, you know, actively, um, actively kind of uh, pulling themselves down. Um, that um, there are times when Adams kind of moves on from helping certain people who are, who 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 are who are going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, that that is a little bit a little bit different. Um, the other piece of this, I think, that interests me 
is the extent to which, in particular, after the Great Society um, and the sort of failures of, the, of the, these sort of national solutions to housing and other things, um, where you start to see um, in the last 20 to 30 years, community groups that are sort of rising to fill in the gaps, the, to, the sort of recognition that, yes, resources are important, and yes, national solutions are, are sometimes necessary, but that people ultimately need more um, than resources, and, and, and resources have a limit in terms of the sort of change that they're going to make to a community. And so you see um, community organizations that, that, that they're not built necessarily around the whole house model exactly, but they're serving the same sort of social functions, right? Helping to um, transform people, or I think this sort of transformational approach to, uh, to social service as opposed to treating people as individuals and as people, um, as opposed to just simply, you know, simply delivering resources that it's, um, you know, the idea of going into communities and being part of the community as being a critical sort of thing, as opposed to, um, you know, working at an office and then driving back to your suburb and at the end of the day. And um, that's yeah. a different sort of model, I guess, of, of service delivery. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Mac, as you were, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, of Barack Obama as, a, as an interesting example of, mm-hmm. of uh, or maybe an interesting question to think about whether he's more uh, as a reformer, more in the Jane Addams camp or the FDR camp uh, in terms of institutionalizing things. And what made me think of that, uh, just to, to lay the groundwork mm-hmm. here, we have just a couple of minutes left. So what I was going to ask at the end is where do we see, um, where do we see, um, Jennifer, you mentioned this sort of dialogue that, that Adam started. Where do we see that dialogue at today? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not so much in terms of what's left of her project to be completed, but but in terms of where are we at with regard to the national solution versus a social organizer uh, model uh, for, for dealing with these problems? Um, and again, that's why I mentioned as, as you were speaking, I was thinking of, of President Obama, who, of course, came from a social organizer background. Yeah, yeah. Um, in Chicago. <laughs> in Chicago, of all places, right? <laughs> Very interesting parallels there. Yeah. Who becomes president of the United States. And, of course, with regard to health care. Yeah. Tries to implement a national uh, a national uh, solution to that. But but in a lot of President Obama's rhetoric, his political rhetoric, I, I actually see a lot of Jane Adams in his calls for a return to local communities caring for their mm-hmm. for their for their fellow citizens and trying to find local solutions to things. So I was wondering if, if there wasn't a strange sort of uh, middle ground between FDR and uh and Jane Adams in the example of Barack Obama. And maybe that's an oversimplification, but. Well, I would, I'd phrase, I'd actually have a different kind of answer to your question. I I think that in terms of the the issues that are being raised that I think, you know, really can resonate with us, there's a lot, but I think maybe two that we haven't uh, maybe fully explored is one, I think it's with the criminalization of youth and especially in her case, uh, immigrant youth, but in our case, maybe black youth, where the sense of her trying to create a juvenile justice system and also to create explanations for why a gang of kids would break in and steal something. And, you know, is this is this the kind of crime that uh, how do we explain this? And is, is it easy to 
fall back on the sense of a, a degenerate race of of uh, they're we're just going to throw them away because they're damaged goods and versus how much of a rehabilitative um, approach do we take to juvenile to juvenile crime and and Jane Addams was very uh, much on the forefront of creating a juvenile justice system that argued that ch- the children needed to be considered differently. And really, since the 1950s, we in America, we've been moving gradually away from that. And I mm. think that some of that we're reckoning with today in terms of thinking about especially the criminalization of, 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 of black youth in the, in the, imagina- in the American imagination mm. of our time. The second thing clearly has to do with immigration. I mean, we are also have lived through a wave of historic immigration to the United States and are immigrants benefits or drains on American society? Are they bringing social problems and poverty into our midst that we have to then take care of? Or are they generating prosperity? Are they um, culturally is the goal to just completely assimilate them or do we become a, a, a multicultural, diverse society? I think that she's living in an age where Americans are grappling with that and she's grappling with different solutions. And that's very much part of our our social dialogue mm-hmm. as well. And so to me, there's there's a lot of uh, of, re- of uh, important issues that she that she brings up and and these uh, and she's in some ways, maybe more relevant to study than ever. It breaks my heart when I give her readings to students and they've never heard of her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> to me, it's just incredible that she's, yeah. she really is an amazing person. And like I said, it's not just for historical reasons. And the last thing that I love that she says, so now, so I am a history professor, but in the last eight months, I've, I've become dean of arts, humanities, and social sciences college at my school. So I have to make cases to people all the time about the value and relevance of the arts, humanities, and social sciences. And what I love about her is that she's saying, you know, she also lives in a time like we do, where people say, well, the reason to get it, why should you get an education if it's not going to lead to a good job? Why even bother going to college? And she has that in her time. I say, well, these, these working class kids are going to go work in factories. So who cares if they're educated or not? Who cares if they're exposed to the arts or music? I mean, they're just going to be factory workers, and that's what their lives are going to be. And she makes a strong argument for why the arts matters in, in everybody's life, that yeah. you're not just what you're going to do at work. And I have to say, I have to make that argument every day right now, <laughs> all the time. So yeah. I appreciated the fact that she was a, she had to address that in her That's her, a great point. As well. Yeah, that's a great point. And I, so I, uh, I especially appreciate her emphasis on the arts. I was a fine yeah. arts major as an undergrad. And, uh, See? <laughs> and I occasionally do, do I'd still paint as a way to uh, exactly. Is that your painting right things. behind you there, sir? <laughs> that's not my painting, no. I wish I was that good. I'm not that good. But uh, so, Mac, we're out at the end of our time here. But did you have any? Uh, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I who was I thinking of the? Um, um, now I've lost the point. Um, Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk too much. Yeah, I know. No, 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 no. That's I. It, it's uh, not that at all. Um, I think the. Um, I think it's it's you talked about Barack Obama and um I think the uh one of the challenges I think he had I think the way he he sort of reconciled it was through um there's a concerted effort to kind of uh, funnel uh, portions of money to um different uh, community organizations and the community organizations had a, uh, over the course of the 8 years of the Obama administration were oftentimes um the the the, they weren't quite the center of funding, but they were they were not um, they were not completely forgotten either. Mm-hmm. So I think that, um, but the challenge of of um, 
of those sorts of uh, of activities, at least at the federal level, it's as much. E- federal government is very, very good at writing checks, and um, <laughs> it's a very That's easy, true. you know, Social Security. I mean, was, you know, if you think about the, the pinnacle example of a very successful program, um, federal program, Social Security has been a tremendous um, benefit in terms of reducing um, poverty among the among, among the aged. Um, and, um, but, um, it, it, that's, a, that's a relatively easy thing to do in terms of just, you know, writing checks. Um, the right. challenge is, is more at the community level and how do you, when you get down to the community level, what, um, um, it, it's so dis you know, it's oftentimes disconnected what, from what communities need. I mean, I know in the case of Cincinnati, we had a very big debate over the last, in the last, you know, a uh, couple, probably last decade or so about, um, transportation funding. And, you know, trans- we ended up building a streetcar and the streetcars, you know, um, struggled. Um, but to some extent, we, why do we have a streetcar? Well, we have a streetcar because there was federal transportation money available to build a streetcar. Right? And, <laughs> right. um, if we had listed the hundred part priorities in our community, I would bet a streetcar would have come in the bottom five mm. um, yeah. 10 years ago, but that's where the money was. And so that's what we did. Um, and so there, there is this sort of, um, there are, the federal government does provide, you know, there's federal resources to localities, but they're often disconnected from the actual problems those localities have. Um, and so that, you know, that I think fundamentally that, that president Obama, um, you know, struggled to, um, make that, those connections as, uh, maybe he would have been much more better off running for mayor of Chicago than than president of the United States. He might've been more comfortable in that position. <laughs> but by the way, so the way you describe it, again, I see that as a problem that comes right out of the great society, right? Because Johnson had envisioned these federal administrators working with, with, with community action, um, uh, the CAPS, uh, community action projects or, or partnerships or something like that. And it very quickly became top driven from the top down. It will fund, but, but they became disconnected from the real needs of the local communities and, so that that problem has, uh, yeah, persisted. So, and I, let me say one other thing is I think the other thing that to look for as you're going through this is very interesting to think about, like the the issues of what we would describe as white flight, but the, you know, there's this sort of wealth flight away from these immigrant mm-hmm. neighborhoods. Uh, mm-hmm. the, as the as the immigrants start to move in, the wealthy move out, right, and, and uh, to other parts of the city. Um, and it's sort mm-hmm. of interesting that there's a lot of uh, um, the idea of. Um, class segregation, right? Uh, Charles Murray talks about this a little bit in Coming Apart um, as well, this idea that um, um, the, 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 there's, we live and, 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 inter- and when we live and we marry and we work with people of, our, of a similar class. And, yeah. um, and, that, and that limits our perspective about what the problems of the world are and it limits the possibilities for actually solving the problems that are actually mutual problems that we have, I think is, is something that Jane Adams would would argue. Yeah, well, it's a great point. That's a great point to end on. And uh, again, we're a little bit over time, and I, I'm uh, thankful for both of you uh, to join us this morning and share your thoughts on these things. It's been a very great, uh, lively conversation, and uh, I've I've learned a great deal. Uh, have a, a lot to think about, and I hope others who've joined us have as well. So, Jennifer Mack, thank you so much. Really appreciate your, thank you your time. Thanks all the. Sorry we didn't get to all the yeah. questions. Thank you to all the the students and hopefully this was helpful. Yeah. I look forward to seeing you guys this summer. Yeah. Fantastic. Likewise. likewise. Yep. Yeah. There's some great questions. So thanks. Thanks uh, for submitting those questions. Uh, 
Um, just a reminder before we end uh, uh, about the, the email that you'll receive with your link for, for a certificate of participation. And if you have enjoyed our conversation today, look into some of the other resources that Ashbrook provides, including free one-day seminars. Uh, we do those in over 20 states. They're based on original documents and discussion uh, along the lines of what we've just done. So go to tah.org and click on seminars at the top of the screen and uh, and you'll find a, a, a list of one-day seminars that you might be interested in attending. So uh, thanks again uh, for joining us. Our next Saturday webinar will be on Douglas MacArthur. That's a big leap from Jane Adams, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that'll be April 4th, uh, Douglas MacArthur. So hope to see you all then and, and take care until then. Thanks. Great. Thanks again for listening to this webinar. Our next webinar will take place on April 4th of 2020 when we'll focus on General Douglas MacArthur. You can find out information about all our upcoming and archived webinars at tah.org slash programs slash webinars. And on our site, you can also access any of several thousand documents and other documents-related resources for the teaching of American history, government, and civics. Thanks again.